Welcome to the Knox County Public Library podcast. James Agee's A Death in the Family has been a staple in American literature for 50 years, but it is not the novel the author intended to publish. University of Tennessee professor Michael LaFaro restored the novel to reflect the manuscript Agee left completed at his death. In this recording, he discusses Agee's life and work and the restoration of Agee's text. Uh, what I was going to do is talk to you a little bit about James Agee in general, uh, and then move on to the specific nature of my most recent project, which is the restoration of his version of A Death in the Family, which is significantly different than the version that was published in 1957 and won the Pulitzer Prize the subsequent year. So we'll talk a little bit also about his range, because he is unusual in the number of areas, genres, etc., in which he wrote. And uh, that's sometimes used, in fact, as a condemnation of aging. I look at, at, at it in a different way, that he's probably more representative of that modern era, the early modern period of literature from 30s, 40s, and you know half of the 50s until he passed away, uh, than many of the authors who he would think of who were indeed famous, but famous as either novelists or poets, but in a particular form where A.G. hit so many forms. So I'm happy to talk to you about James A.G. He was born in Knoxville in 1909. Uh, I guess I should put in a blurb here, too. In November of 2009, we will be doing a centennial celebration at the university. I put a celebration on in 2005, and we're going to try and uh, do another one and uh, may even link in with some interesting other facts. We were talking about uh, A.G.'s interest in Lincoln a little bit. Uh, he was. If you read A Death in the Family, you'll know that his father is compared to Lincoln. I may have a chance to talk to you a little bit later about his uh, omnibus series that he wrote and adapted Carl Sandburg's Young Mr. Lincoln in the early 50s for TV, because he was a screenwriter for TV as well. And so he had a great love of Lincoln, and he also used to appear in some of the movies that he wrote the screenplays and television plays for. So he was the drunk advising Lincoln, young Lincoln, on what he should do and shouldn't do. He liked to typecast himself, so he was almost always the town drunk. A very intelligent drunk, but the town drunk nonetheless. A.G. did have a significant drinking problem. As I said, you know, he did begin here in this region in 1909 in, in Knoxville, right in the Fort Sanders area. And one of the things that struck me as I was doing a lot of work with A.G. is that the man's extraordinarily complex, diverse, and he's also really driven. He's somebody that is on the one hand, both a willing and then an unwilling participant in the events of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And as I said to you, he was somebody that continually kept jumping fields and exploring new things because he felt as a writer, I think, that he could do most anything he wanted to. And also, he was trying to support several families, mistresses. You know, He had a very interesting life as you go through it as well. Um, but this is a man who received great acclaim as a poet, a novelist, a journalist, an essayist, a film reviewer, and a screenplay writer, both for Hollywood and for television. So this is a guy who, at the age of 25, Yale published his first book of poems in the prestigious Yale series of younger poets. And it wasn't too bad. He was an alumni of Harvard. So I mean, they had to overcome a certain distaste in publishing it. He also uh, got an interesting job. He graduated from Harvard in 1932. He went to Knoxville High, by the way, for a year. After being in Knoxville, after his father's death, he, which is documented, obviously, in the story, his mom eventually took him a couple of years later, and they were down at Swanee in St. Andrews, and he was there, came back here for his freshman year of high school, and then they moved to Maine, uh, and he went to Phillips Exeter Academy. Uh, she married an Episcopal priest, and he was stationed there. And so, the, of course, the Phillips Exeter is kind of the uh, training wheels for Harvard. It was, you know, it's kind of a direct pipeline from a very prestigious uh, academy right to the uh, hallowed halls of Harvard. 
And there, of course, he distinguished himself in his writing, uh, as you might expect, and particularly and interestingly, people don't talk about his sense of humor, but he was a wicked satirist. He really had a wicked sense of humor. In fact, the thing that got him noticed and hired when he graduated in 1932, not a really good year for graduating. Right in the heart of the Depression, he gets hired by Fortune magazine on the basis of a parody he did with fellow Harvard students of Time magazine. Henry Luce liked it so much, he hired him. But when you think about Agee as kind of his legend as the incorrigible romantic, Fortune isn't exactly that kind of magazine. I mean, this was the celebration of American capitalism. And so he wound up doing straight commercial journalism. They told him to go write about a story about orchids. He did orchids. He did a great piece on TVA for them. And by the way, you know, Paul Ashdown's book of the selected journalism of James Age is a wonderful thing if you want to read his journalistic pieces. And that just came out in a new edition a year or so ago. While he was at Fortune in 1936, he got the first real assignment where he said, this is it. This is the one I've been waiting for. He was told to go down to Alabama and do an expose of sharecropping. This was very standard. People have been doing this now for a good bit of the 30s, but Fortune wanted to get in on it. And so they were going to send agents. But I, I got to have the best photographer in the world. And uh, so he requested and actually got Walker Evans, whom he considered the best photographer in the world. And certainly, uh, as a documentarian, he still has probably that reputation for the 20th century. He's an extraordinary photographer. So they both go down to, to Hale County, Alabama, and A.G. decides the only way to truly get inside the story is to live with the sharecroppers, which he does while Evans, a more sensible man, stays in the hotel in town. Um, and he produces a piece of journalism that is, I think to quote the editors of Fortune, absolutely unusable, completely bizarre, unusable, etc. This is the piece of journalism coupled with Evans's photographs that becomes Let Us Now Praise Famous Men which comes out, it takes them five years to get it out because there's a huge tussle. Uh, and finally, Houghton Mifflin agrees to bring it out, but they say they have to remove all the words that would be banned in Boston because A.G. was being a little saltier than they uh, felt they really wanted. And it's still a pretty vital and powerful book, but the problem with it was for Fortune magazine, it wasn't just sharecropping. What he was doing was talking about a counterpoint of art and reality. It's a very experimental book. It features almost surrealism. When you open the book, most people, you know, kind of just freak out, quite honestly. Uh, you open it, and all you have are Walker Evans's 41 pages of black and white documentary photographs. No captions, no text, no title to the book, zero. Just the photographs. You have to get past all the photographs before you get to his title, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, in the biblical reference, but he's praising perhaps the lowest people on the economic scale. And so he's trying to elevate them as an art form, and a lot of this is his guilt about what he is doing. Is he exploiting them to advance himself as an artist writer? So it's a very convoluted book, and to give you an idea, it has frustrated librarians. It really has. I found it so far in this under categories in sociology, literature, photojournalism, history, philosophy, music, and agriculture. It's been classified under all those things. And they all work. And that's, that's what Fortune was looking at the seed of and going, are you kidding? Because it was absolutely bizarre. Nothing had ever been seen like this before, quite honestly, unless you looked at experimental continental fiction. And uh, they weren't doing that at Fortune. Of course, it comes out in 1941. His timing is not exactly impeccable. There were a few other issues going around in 1941 that uh, kind of submerged experimental fiction. And so with the advent of World War II, Basically, this book was an utter flop. And it sold maybe, I think, about 600 copies total. 
It was reissued in 1960, however, and has never been out of print. It became one of the Bibles for the Civil Rights Movement, and it was just an extraordinary piece. But what it did is it came out after the Pulitzer Prize had been won on a death in the family. So now all his stuff was either reissued or brought back into print, or new manuscripts were brought into print, which was possibly you know, the source of a lot of the problem that I'm facing now, trying to sort out what AG actually did. But trying to proceed a little bit chronologically to tell you about these areas again, A.G. gave us probably the most incisive article on the dropping of the atomic bomb. He had the lead cover article for Time on August 20th, 1945. He was the first person to talk about the atom bomb as both a significant, literally a world-changing event. He said literally for him and for everyone, this event changed the world. He wrote, as a quote, the promise of good and evil boarded alike on the infinite with this further terrible split in the fact that upon a people so nearly drowned in materialism, even in peacetime, the good uses of this power might easily bring disaster as prodigious as the evil. I mean, nobody was speaking about the evil of the good use of atomic power at this point. And it's a really bizarre concept, but he saw that this would penetrate so much into our lives. The possibilities were frightening to him, not just dropping a bomb, but what would happen if we tried to peacefully harness it. So he's kind of an interesting person in that regard. In 1941, the same year that Let Us Now Praise Famous Men flopped, he began reviewing movies for the first time. Uh, for Time, The Nation, and a series of magazines. And literally, the quality of his prose was such that uh, he began, most film historians say he began the field of film criticism. He's the person, when they name the three greatest film critics, A.G. is always one of the three. W.H. Auden, the noted poet, this is a quote from him, in my opinion, A.G.'s column, his film review column, is the most remarkable regular event in American journalism today. He assigned it to, he says, quote, that very select class of newspaper work that has permanent literary value. A.G. was a flat-out good writer. Sometimes he's so full of himself, I want to throw the book against the wall. But also, there are passages there. I said, you know, if I could write like that, <laughs> you know, what I wouldn't get in some instances. But these things, sometimes they were long, and sometimes they were just one-liners. He did film essays for Life magazine. He single-handedly brought back respect for silent comedy. He relaunched Chaplin's career, Harry Langdon and Buster Keaton, in 1949 with a very famous article called Comedy's Greatest Era. It's one that's always quoted when somebody's doing research into silent films. Um, the next year, he made John Huston's reputation by another piece in life called Undirectable Director uh, and made a great friend of Huston as Taboo. But A.G., he kind of passes, I think, the acid test for any film critic. Anytime you read him, you're enjoying yourself, even if you totally disagree with everything he's saying. He'll entertain you at least. When Lauren Bacall debuted, that little smoldering debut at 17 into Have and Have Not in 1944, his quick turn was Lauren Bacall has cinematic personality to burn, and she burns both ends against an unusually little middle. <laughs> uh, he defended Chaplin's Monsieur Verdot when everybody was panning it, uh, and it literally you know, turned, in some ways, Chaplin's career, and Chaplin appreciated it. And he also defended Chaplin against uh, accusations that were coming from McCarthy-like sources. There was a 1948 musical starring Dan Daly, you know, a good song and dance man, uh, called You Were Meant For Me. AG's review was, that's what you think. <laughs> so sometimes he didn't waste his time on them. Of Chaplin, he was obviously a great fan of Chaplin's. He said a movie could be made of his hands alone. He liked his artistry so much. So 
In some ways, by 1948, AG tended to reject a lot of the elitist, experimental, and even some of the highbrow attitudes and began a Hollywood phase as a screenwriter. He wrote for Huntington Hartford. He adapted Stephen Crane's The Blue Hotel and The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky. He plays uh, Scruffy the Town Drunk in The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky. That's occasionally aired. Um, and his big, biggest success, of course, now friend John Houston. When you get that kind of promo in life, you, you, you made a friend. Uh, signs him on to do a little bit of screenwriting for him. You know which one he did? The African Queen. He was the screenwriter on The African Queen. Though, uh, if you know much about the making of that film, I think in terms of books, Hepburn's book is the best. There's, her title is an odd one. It's wonderful, though. The African Queen, or How I Went to Africa with Bogart Bacall in Houston and Almost Lost My Mind, <laughs> was the book she wrote about it. Uh, because Houston basically only wanted to shoot big game, and he had him on site, and that was the reason for doing it. And he, he couldn't care less about the filming of the thing half the time. Uh, A.G. had had a heart attack. Uh, so someone else was coming there to try and do the polishing. So, I mean, it was, it was a kind of mess in many ways. But he still got the credit for it and did a fair amount of work adapting uh, the novel, Ian Forrester's novel, The African Queen, for the screen. He also, and this is a wonderful story, if you like cult movies, The Night of the Hunter, Charles Lawton's only attempt at directing. And it's an extraordinary movie it's, it's kind of like Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. When you talk to film people, they keep saying, well, there's, you know, there's still really nothing else like this. It's so wild and different. You know, Robert Mitchum starred as the preacher who had love and hate. Let me tell you the story about love and hate and good and evil, whose business was killing widows for their money, the preacher, right? And he was in pursuit, devilish pursuit, of these two children who are running away after... Uh, their father is carted off to jail. The preacher marries the mother and then kills her. And you have Shelley Winters in that incredible underwater scene trapped in a car as her hair is floating with the seaweed. I mean, visually, uh, the thing is amazing as a film. It's also a frightening film. And that was 1954. But there was a huge controversy. Uh, Lawton said that A.G. delivered him a screenplay, guess what, was absolutely unusable. <laughs> It was a monster, he said, a big, baggy monster. Mitchum said it was bigger than two New York City phone books. He said, I think, actually, to quote him, and this is a quote, it must have weighed a goddamn ton, is what he said. And the thing kept growing bigger and bigger in Hollywood legendary, and, you, and Lawton said he just had to throw it away and write a new one, okay? But kept A.G. on the credits at a charity. Well, nobody had a copy of A.G.'s screenplay until about three years ago. We found it. Uh, the AG trustee was hunting through some boxes that he, he was just appointed trustee and received it. And he got rid of some old sneakers and he found some other stuff and stuck to the bottom of the box was an original copy of AG's screenplay. And it was big. You know, commonly, those things are about 100 pages. AG gives lots of instruction, he wants it done his way, always. 293 pages typescript. But when you read it and compare, Lawton didn't throw it away. He used it. He just picked what he was using. So it was, you know, a co-work in many ways, what you see in the final screen version. But it was quite clear that uh, A.G. once again had given him a lot of ideas about how to treat, and again, this was an adaptation of uh, Davis Grubb's novel, the Night of the Hunter. But A.G. wanted to put in some slapstick to you know, lessen the tension at points, but also to intensify it by contrast. So if you know that movie at all, that's when the preacher is trying to lure the children out of the cellar to kill them, and they won't come out. And then he says, well, children, I'm coming to get you. You know, It's, it's kind of comic, but he's going to slit their throats, just like he slit their mother's throat. And when he gets in there, they scurry out and they knock over a Shelby, and the cans start falling and hitting you in the head. And A.G. had a whole silent film routine where the cans kept rolling off, bonk, he'd get up, another can rolled off, bonk, another can rolled off, bonk, you know, that kind of thing, to make it almost a slapstick routine. And lots of one can's enough. You know, so, so that cut two pages right there, but the can's not falling in the proper sequence. 
So anyway, you get the idea that he does do a huge amount here. And um, A.G. was a hard liver. Okay, it was quite clear. Started suffering heart attacks in about 1949. When, they, uh, when he was working in New York, he would commonly keep a fifth of Jack Daniels in one drawer, and in the other drawer he had a quart bottle of Benzedrine, which was legal then, you know, uppers. Keep going, and if you needed to calm down, well, that's what Jack Daniels was for. And he was, well, let's see if I get this right now, he may have been married, the kids don't know for sure, to his third wife. They can't find a license. So they don't know whether it was a common law union or an actual union for his third wife, Mayhem. They're in New Jersey and New York. This is, you know, like 53, 54. Agee's still doing screenplay writing in Hollywood and going back and forth from coast to coast. Uh, but he's having an affair with a woman uh, in Los Angeles who we just purchased her letters from her niece. And the, the stuff is really amazing. It's, a, you know, it's a, a torrid romance on the one hand, but also just great amounts of concern on both sides because it's one of those loves that cannot be, really, but they had a great affair. And she said at one point to the niece... It was a good thing that he had to leave and go back to New York after a month because any more would have killed me. They never slept. He worked nonstop and they never really slept. So two major heart attacks and no let up. In 1955, he dies in the back of a New York City cab at the age of 45. <coughs> that left his third wife and three young kids by that wife all under the age of eight uh, with his sum total of his net worth, which was about 450 bucks total. Friends took up collections. Chaplin came through, although he was now banned from the United States. Remember, they pulled his passport when he sailed for, for England uh, because of his communist affiliations. He sent a check for $1,000. Other people were similarly generous, but it wasn't enough to, to live on for you know, three kids and a person for, for very long. So they established the AG Trust. And the first editor uh, of A Death in the Family named McDowell, David McDowell, was a friend of AG's, a younger friend, almost kind of an acolyte. He worshipped AG, was the man who put together A Death in the Family to raise money for the AG Trust. And he was an editor, but he couldn't get anybody to give him a big enough advance on it, so he also became the publisher. So he controlled the rights to publication, he controlled the manuscripts, and he controlled the publishing. So he had complete control over it, and this is why he could do and change the novel as essentially he, as an editor, saw fit. So I don't have any uh, problem with that, except, as you'll see, um, in the preface to A Death in the Family, what he says... I present, it's presented here exactly as James Agee wrote it. He said, we put in a new introduction, and there are a couple little changes, but basically it's exactly as he wrote it, and it's not. It is radically, radically altered. Because he didn't think what Agee was doing would suit 1957's audience, and he was trying to make money as well as establish his friend's reputation. Because Agee died, I mean, in essence, he was a failure. All his work was out of print. He had made a walloping $450. They had debts that the $450 wouldn't satisfy. His correspondence, his begging correspondence said, please don't tow my car. I'm trying to get the parking money I owe you to the parking lot owner. Don't tow it and sell it. I need my car. In some ways, he does have that prototypical artist syndrome, but what his friends did was feed that and create it as a legend, almost as a myth. His friend Dwight McDonald christened him a literary James Dean, and this got a lot of play in magazines like The New Yorker and things like that. Others, you know, just said he was, you know, obviously the quintessential romantic artist, and he had the unmistakable and unimpeachable imprint of genius. Nobody appreciated him in his own time. <laughs> okay. But that wasn't, of course, what A.G. wanted. But what happened was the unappreciated genius, when McDowell's edition of A.G.'s book, McDowell knew the tenor of the times really well. And when that's published in 57, McDowell was a great publicist. Probably a better publicist than an editor, and he was a good editor. 
He brought it out in November after all the big books had already come out for Christmas. It was the one solitary interesting book coming out at that point right before Thanksgiving. Because it's a dead time for the publishing industry. They've already gotten all their stuff out for Christmas. And so it got top reviews. Everybody paid attention to it. You also have the legend that was built up about him on both coasts because he was an incredible conversationalist. People loved him. Uh, he, he would just be perfectly willing to stay up all night chatting with you about what you were interested in and add his two cents to it. You know, a bobby fun. And as many of the women who knew him that I interviewed said, what a hunk. He was a very, before he, the heart attack started, he was just a really good looking guy. And you know, a very much engaged person with people and with literature, art, music, all the things that you know are of interest to a lot of people, uh, certainly in his circle. So this thing wins the Pulitzer Prize. It, like, uh, like it is now praise famous men, excuse me, is infused with a sense of place. And so what happens right after the Pulitzer Prize, remember, let us now praise famous men comes out in 1960. They bring out select his friends become his editors. They bring out his screenplays, film criticism, poetry, short stories, prose, letters, and journalism. Even some of his juvenilia comes out. The problem is they're so devoted to his reputation, they have the manuscripts that McDowell assembles, but they pick what reinforces his reputation that they like. So you only get a partial picture. This is the, the book I did is the first volume of 10 like-size volumes, about six, 700 pages a piece, uh, of the works of James Agee, because literally only, well, less than half of his work was selected by his friends. Less than half. So there's a huge amount still to come out. Uh, the one I'll do after this actually is his poetry volume. People have only kind of stopped poetry right after that big early success as a college a recent college graduate, he kept writing. But he did a lot of topical poetry. They wanted classical poetry. The first thing, he's doing sonnets and, and, and Greek forms. I mean, it's very, very classical poetry for the time. Very much against, but he was also very much of the time. He does surrealist poetry, stream of consciousness poetry, and some wicked, again, talked about his satire, wicked satirical poetry about any demagogue. He really savages Huey Long, Father Coughlin, the radio you know, priest. I mean, he just, we takes them to the cleaners in the poetry. So, you know, it's stuff that they didn't want coming out. They also, because of the 1950s, didn't publish things like America, Look at Your Shame, where A.G. was heavily involved, you know, when other people really weren't, in issues of racism. And that was a piece he brought out in World War, he never got published, he wrote in World War II about the Detroit race riots at an amusement park and the photographs of it that so compelled him. But then he translates it to what happens it, to him after he's discussing this with his friends. This is all part of this narrative. When he's returning home on a crosstown bus in New York City and there are southern soldiers on there and they're commenting about having niggers on this bus, and we wouldn't have them in my town, et cetera. And it's pretty vituperative. And he's going on, and he's, again, he's, he's guilty. He wants, he says, they want to punch. He says, but they're so big, they'll tear me apart. He says, so I do nothing. I looked around, and everybody else that was white was shrinking in kind of guilt until one old black woman basically tells them off. In a, very, in a very, you know, you, you ought to be ashamed what you're saying. And you're fighting a war to try and prevent that kind of treatment of people. And look what you're, you know. And he, they just, she just cows, you know, the giant Navy and Marine young men. Uh, and she's a small, slight, older woman. But she had the moral high ground. And he goes through this, and he, he finally arrives home, and he gets off the bus, and he said, well, he said, I'm so, so ashamed of not doing anything. He said, I had to at least tell my friends and... He said, I didn't know whether I was more shocked at their reaction or at my own because they said that that's what they would have probably have done too. He said, and the only reason I write this story down is so that I can now tell it to you. Meaning, that's how he ends it. What are you going to do in this situation? Not surprisingly, this did not get published at the time. But 
you will see this throughout age, he takes on some very, very uncomfortable issues and does it very well. So what we have is a canon of his that's available, but it's almost all shaped by other people's hands, not by A.G. When we have a text that A.G. oversaw, that's the main text we use. The reason I did a restoration here of the original one is because when I started looking at this material, we got McDowell's son sold UT Library three boxes of his father's material. And in it were two full-length chapters that no one had ever seen. And I had looked at some of this I said, whoa, this is amazing. And I said, well, maybe, you know, there's more to this because the introduction here says they've used it all, and these are finished full chapters. I said, what's going on? So, you know, suspicion. But I couldn't get permission. I tried for seven years. I even caroled in the snow outside the trustee's window in New York City. My voice evidently was not moving enough. The woman actually was having some problems with schizophrenia, it turns out, and she was pulling back instead of trying to get AG's pub. You know, the idea of the trustee is you're supposed to protect, but you're supposed to make money for the trust, which in turn then goes for the family. That's the point, right? Uh, she was pulling back all the copyrights. As soon as one came, she wouldn't issue, allow the books to be issued again. She was taking things off the market as fast as she could to protect them, was her idea. So she was getting very paranoid about it. I had to show it. And it wasn't until 2002 that I got a call from the folks in Special Collections saying, over at the UT Library, saying, you need to get over here now. I said, what's up? He said, the new AG trustee is here. I said, the new trustee? Yep. The other lady died and there's a new trustee. And I said, well, i got to go to class. Hold them there. I said, well, they're trying to leave. Tell them I'll take them to lunch at a really nice restaurant and bring them some good stuff to look at. And I'll be there in an hour as soon as I finish my class. So they were kind enough to wait. And we, we just kind of hit it off, and we discussed all these things, and I told them about the possibilities that we had with this, and they agreed to let me go forward with it. The ten volumes, the restoration, all the rest of it, subject to their approval and seeing the final documents. Um, so that's really how this began, and when I went through it, I found that literally McDowell had excised ten of the third full chapters, a little over ten chapters that aren't there. He said he added in the beautiful and wonderfully lyrical Knoxville, summer of 1915, you know, the piece that Samuel Barber set so elegantly to music, but it's not supposed to be in there. It has nothing to do with this novel. But he said, I would have told him he needed to put it in, so I put it in. I was able to find A.G.'s outlines, his notes, and I think, that's why the book's so fat, it's not just all <laughs> of what A.G. wrote, it's all the proof. Because when you're messing with a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, you better have some evidence and not just an opinion that you'd like it to be this way because you found stuff. So I think I've documented really pretty clearly what had gone on. Over 10 new chapters, a completely new, radically different introduction. Do you remember Knoxville summer of 1915? It's kind of bucolic and it's a lazy almost summer day in the South. And you hear the locusts and the children are playing on quilts and they're drinking tea as they're rocking on the front porches. And the fathers are all watering the flowers and their lawns. It's very sleepy and it's beautiful. It's lyrical. That's why it wasn't supposed to be there. The original introduction is a nightmare sequence. He thinks he's in Chattanooga, then he realizes he's in Knoxville, and he sees a crowd ahead of him in downtown Knoxville, and they're beating a man to death in the streets, and they strip him bare and leave him there, dead. And he decides, for some reason, he needs to go and pick him up and carry him somewhere. He doesn't know where. But he's afraid they're going to tear him apart, just like they did this man. And he identifies the man as John the Baptist at one point. So, it's, you know, it's, like I said, it's surreal. You know, and so he's, he's carrying this dead body over most of downtown Knoxville, and then he realizes where he needs to take it. And it's this lot that you note, which is in the first chapter of McDowell's book, where father and son come back from the movies, and they stop there, and they look over the train tracks near the LNN station in Knoxville at the mountains, because the father is torn and longing for the mountains but he has to stay in the city to provide well for his family and to try and achieve success 
American style. And that's where the son and the father feel truly one. And it turns out this dead body has to go there. But before it gets there, guess what? The summer turns to winter, the body starts decaying, and it literally putrefies to the point where he can't carry it anymore, so he has to drag it by the heels. And he's dragging it now through the streets of Knoxville, trying to get to this lot where he's going to put it on this limestone outcropping, a kind of altar. And before he gets there, though, it freezes. And he says, well, thank God, at least the smell's gone. But then he notices that the head's only hanging on by a little bit, and he doesn't do a good job of gentling it off the curb, and the head detaches and starts rolling away. And so he's chasing the head through the streets of Knoxville because now it's taken on a life of its own, and it's trying to elude him. And not only that, when he catches it in corners, he says, a frightened animal, and I tried not to scare it, but I couldn't tell whether it was a glaring eye or a mutely roaring mouth. All the flesh keeps transforming of the head. And then he places the whole thing there, and then he wakes up from the nightmare. But he analyzed it, he said, I realized that it was my father. Because remember, he never really thinks his father's dead because his father is killed, but he just has a tiny mark on his chin. It looks like he's just asleep. But now with the heads detached, if any kid, even at six, knows is dead. Right? But he never had closure because all he did was see his father asleep. And A.G. was into Freud. He was into analysis at this point as literary metaphors. And so he has all of this. And, but he says, I realize now that I could only find out what I needed to know by going back to my earliest memory and writing down and recalling everything that I could remember because everything was really always about my father. And then the book goes chronologically. So all those chapters that McDowell put as flashbacks aren't. There are no flashbacks. This book is linear and chronological. It's almost, you know, time snapshots early on because what do you remember as a kid? Right? You remember certain events, certain happenings, etc. You don't have the movie, you get a snapshot kind of thing. And that's what he builds on. So McDowell actually had taken eight chapters, mixed them up, cut them up, divided them into six chapters, divided them in two, and plumped them in randomly to divide the novel into thirds. All of that material, just about, is part of the earlier beginning of you know, the young boy's life. To give you an example, the very famous chapter that McDowell begins with, which is you know, where they go see, guess what, a Charlie Chaplin movie in downtown Knoxville, is actually chapter 17. His first chapter is actually chapter 17. So with this new surreal nightmare introduction, the different ordering, you really get a very different book. There's a chapter, those, those two chapters I mentioned to you, the two big ones that came in in 88, one's on Chilhowee Park. His father and mother taking him there when it's an amusement park. And it's a wonderful chapter, absolutely wonderful. The other one is called Enter the Ford, and it explains why his father had that wreck. It turns out he drove hell-bent for leather all the time. And he nearly wrecked in Fort Sanders before he wrecked trying to come home from La Follette. So when you see these chapters that I've added in, it ties together. The themes in the introduction now make sense. The car accident makes sense. Because A.G. was linking everything. But McDowell separated it out because, in my opinion, he didn't want it to be so local. A.G. was also writing in dialect, and a lot of the dialect came from his father's mountain heritage and how he depicts it. The father is a vital, vital character. In McDowell's book, he figures only in three chapters. He cut the father out, and the whole book was supposed to be about the father's relationship to his son. So in many ways, although everything that McDowell did, although he also picked the wrong versions of three chapters, he picked draft versions instead of Agee's final versions, because he couldn't tell the difference, I think. They're, they're not so far off, but when you look at it carefully, you see it. It's a very different book. You know, and whether you like it better or not really is up to you. I mean, my point is to give you two works that you can compare, and I've designed that book so you can read McDowell's book from it. You have to go to the appendix, read Knoxville, summer of 1916, 
Then it says it'll chart. You know, then read chapter 17. Then, you know, and it just goes like that. So it excerpts, you know, the ten odd chapters that obviously he didn't include, puts things back out of order to the flashback versions that he created, but it isn't what AG created. So this way, in the same book, you can look at both and decide which one you like, because they are radically different. AG's version is more local, it's far more autobiographical. There are themes there of the country versus the city the old ways of farming versus the industrialization of Knoxville that was taking, taking place so much right at that time. Uh, and there's a tension there that goes throughout the novel. And you don't see that in McDowell's. There's a lot more literariness, I think, in what Agee did. But what McDowell was trying to do was to make it universal. And a guy speaking with an East Tennessee accent as a major character was not going to be universal in 1957. Okay? So I think he made the right judgment, in many ways, for trying to maximize income to the Agee family. The only thing that I don't like that he did is that he stated that he didn't change a thing. And that's the reason that the new version is the base text. If he had said that I had edited this book and did significant editing to bring this to you, his text would have been the base text, and the restored text would have been, this is how you read the restored text using my notes. Okay. So that's, you know, it's, it's really just trying to give eventually A.G. his say. That's what I was trying to do with the book. Thank you very much. Your question. Wasn't there a movie came out? Yeah. Afterwards? Well, what, what you have, what you have, uh, McDowell's version wins the Pulitzer Prize. Okay. And in 62, the play, All the Way Home, or 61, wins the Pulitzer Prize in drama. And then in 62, they bring out the movie, which doesn't do so well. But that's the kind of progression. Yeah. And that's another thing. You know, you have also, in that nightmare introduction, his father's ghost comes talks and talks to him, which, guess what? That's one of the major scenes later on. He won't, the spirit won't leave until his wife says, yes, you've comforted me. We'll be okay. You can go. So the book... Um as you have sort of distorted, the novel was finished from A.G.'s perspective. I mean, you found finished chapters or... Yes, yes and no. Uh, well, some chapters have uh, ten drafts. He, he worked these things over and over and over again. And not many are clean because he often cleaned them when he typed. And this is all from manuscript because okay, he never typed it. What we do have are the outlines which show what fills in. And you can never with A.G. be sure in fact, I'm reasonably happy to state that had he lived, it wouldn't look like this. This is much more of the finished product that was left. Far more than what McDowell produced. But you don't feel that there are sort of gaps? In no, everything that's mentioned in the outline is kind of filled in. And then if you look at the morning watch, which he had already completed, he's kind of bringing it up to right where the morning watch is beginning in some way not chronologically in the age of the child, but it's the next step. I mean, Rufus isn't really going to school yet here, and then literally he's at St. Andrew's, you know, for the Holy Thursday beginning the vigil. So, uh, and religion plays a very important part in the book, and it's emphasized more in this version than it is in McDowell's. A.G. had already published this 20 years before in the Partisan Review, before he actually began. Now, A.G. was writing A Death in the Family. By the way, that wasn't the title. He never gave it a title. That was McDowell's title. Um, but A.G. had been writing this for almost 20 years. But he, in those, remember those love letters towards the end, like 53, 54 I was mentioning to you? In there, it says that he was fully at work on it. In fact, the, the woman said he made her put it in her freezer every night to protect it so it wouldn't burn in case the house went up that they were living in. Okay? So he was clearly making a big push at that time to finish it, and letters from his friends are saying, is it done yet, Jim? Is it done? So it's pretty close. Now, this is the guy with Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. He's driving from New Jersey over to New York to help to drop off the manuscript, thinks of something. I mean, the publisher's expecting it. The delivery is now. Drop dead date. 
right? He turns around on the bridge, he does a U-turn, he goes back to New Jersey because he wants to rewrite a part of it. Hmm. You, know, you kind of got to pull it out of his hands, you, you get the impression at some points. I wonder if one of those essays in the book that uh, came out in 2005 that you just mentioned mm -hmm. is on uh, northern control of regional, of regional writers or, you know, the sort of bias. Because it came up several times in your remarks. Mm -hmm. Well, no, but that's that's always been there, uh, because the major publishing axis really uh, at the beginning of the 19th century uh, was Boston, New York, Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and they literally fed the rest of the country. Other publishing hubs developed. Cincinnati starts developing in the 1830s, you know, and St. Louis after that. We got to follow kind of the progression of the country, the settlement patterns, yeah. but it, it, it is dominated. And when you look at that, for example, I do a lot of work on Boone and Crockett, the mythology and legendary of the West, it comes completely out of the publishing houses of the East. You want to see where the creation is? Yeah. I've heard Wilma Biden talk about, and she hated the term local color writers, and mm -hmm. she said they don't think Updock is local color, they don't think Westchester County is local <laughs> color. Yep. Well, I couldn't agree with her more. Uh, we often chatted about that kind of thing because it's exactly it. if you're writing about Boston, New York, or Philadelphia, it's not local color. That's, that's, that's life, life and that's high culture, and that's what the way things were intended by God. Uh, it's those other places that don't. Well, you know those old maps of the New Yorkers' view of the world? There's this big state of New York, and there's this big state of Florida, and it's squished together with California? That's pretty much it. You know. Um, it's, there, there is obviously a prejudice. And even when local color writing, after the Civil War up through literally World War I, was all the rage, what they were trying to do was, in the South, they were picking out the oddities, the things that were so different from them, uh, to hold up as examples of what needs to be helped, what needs to be eradicated, what needs, you know, uh, or what's just so hilarious because aren't they stupid? Which means simply they're different than us, or have maybe some different values. But yeah, there's, there's no question there's an incredible bias that works that way. I think it's much less now. I mean, you see the rise of Southern fiction, you know, in the 20th century, from about the 1920s forward, a huge push in respect there. But again, A.G. always kind of, he, he never was on target if there was such a thing that you could discern. He was always... You could say either in front of it or behind it, depending on your point of view. What's interesting is that here's A.G. went to New York, made it in New York, mm -hmm. made it big time, and he still, you know, wouldn't He always considered himself a Southerner. I know. It's really funny. I mean, the last time he was really in the South was he was a, you know, a freshman at Knoxville High. The rest of that is, is elite, you know, elite schools, and basically, New York, L.A., Hollywood. This is a man who's, uh, we're finding his stuff with yeah. East German filmmakers, now that they opened some of those archives over there. His stuff is all over. He was working internationally with a group of people, both in New York and in Los Angeles, Hollywood areas, who were literally in the cultural forefront of post-war America. All the emigres, all the refugees that were coming in to these major centers, uh, he was part, part parcel of those circles. And yet in the 30s, he was sleeping and living with his sharecroppers who they were revisited in mm -hmm. recent years, remembered him fondly, didn't have much use for Walker Evans. <laughs> well, you know, he really, uh, I think, identified with them yeah. in a way that Evans didn't. Evans, remember, well, well the idea that documented he's an artistic photographer but he also takes himself out of it. Agee was the exact reverse, which is probably why they were a good team. Agee just dives in completely. He even says in Letters for Hispanic Men, when he's talking about some of the music sessions, he says, he would have loved being alive now, put earbuds in and everything, so your head could go boom, 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 boom. He says, you have to listen to Beethoven, but you have to crawl inside the speaker so that the music literally comes from your head out if you want to feel the true power of him. In some ways, he is very much the romantic. Mm -hmm. you know, to plumb the depths of all experience. And yet there's this guy that who will, you know, take up... You know what the last thing he was working on? It was the opening film. He was writing the screenplay for the opening 
at the Welcome Center at Williamsburg. Commercial. Commercial stuff. Because he just had the big success with Lincoln on Omnibus. It's a fascinating kind of uh, study because it allows me and the other editors that are helping me with this project to delve into so many areas of American history and culture and writing uh, because A.G. just kind of went everywhere. You know, he just didn't... He said, the boy lacked focus. Uh, the heirs in the family. Mm-hmm. Are they pleased with these new editions? Well, this is, yeah, they, they're fully supportive, actually. They are, in fact, this is Dee Dee Agee's, his daughter's drawing. She did the cover for me. Okay? So it's kind of a family venture in lots of ways. And that'll be kind of iconic. And I don't know if, um, yeah, I don't have the other one, because that was a 2005 book that I did. But her son is also a very good artist. And he did a portrait called Grandfather. And I, they were kind enough to let us use that for an earlier book. We have to get their permission to be able to do this. But they've been completely and fully supported. In fact, I got some good news today, too. The library at UT, I got the AG Trust to deposit all their records, all their manuscripts here at UT for safekeeping. Um, and they think they have now concluded an agreement to purchase them. So they'll stay here. And <laughs> the delight and torture of every editor, the trustee wrote, by the way, the family has just given me one box of new materials that were not included. And I didn't think there was much in there because it just seemed to be personal effects. He said, but as I dug deeper, I found 25 manuscripts. They are articles, screenplays, uh, no poems, I'm safe there so far, but journalistic articles, uh, film reviews, film essays, etc. And I just heard today from Barbara Dewey, the head of the library, that they have agreed to sell those as well. Uh, I sent an email out before I left to come here today. In fact, all the others saying, not stop the presses, but the presses are going to need some more looking to because <laughs> your tables of contents have all just changed because there's more material coming. Like I said, it, it's, it's at least equal. It's actually a slight bit greater than everything that's already come out. He just kept working on things all the time, and some of the things were not saleable in their time. I mean, most of the racism pieces obviously aren't going to fly. Uh, they, they were a little too hard-edged. He had one, in fact, that um, on homosexuality that he wrote that was published in the Harvard Advocate in 1931. I mean, this man touched everything. You know, he, he, he had that 10-foot pole, and he'd touch it. You know, it, just, it didn't matter to him. He wasn't keeping a distance. So um, it's, a very, it's a very interesting, but none of that comes out. Well, you've been a great audience. Thank you for taking so much time out of your evening. Wow. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library.